Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi, everyone. I am here with Julie Sokolow. She is a WWDMD listener. What would Dr. Myers do? And she is a film director, musician, and writer. She's also an award-winning director of the film Woman on Fire, which would probably be of real interest to my audience. It's a documentary about New York City's first openly transgender firefighter. And she is now a social worker. She graduated from the MSW program at the University of Pittsburgh, just this past May of 2023. And she's my guest, but I feel like I'm her guest because uh, in conversation with her, she said, you know, in regard to this podcast, I think your audience would want to know who you are. You should be interviewed. People would want to know about your career. And I said, they would. Do you want the job? And she valiantly stepped up to the plate. And with her background as a documentarian, I think she's probably the perfect person for the job. So I'm going to just turn it over to you, Julie. Thanks for your time. Well, thank thanks you, for your Dr. Interest. Myers. <laughs> this is like a total honor. I'm a fan of the show. I listened to all the episodes and uh, I did find myself wondering about you and your background. And so I'll kind of start right there. Where did you grow up? And when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> so I grew up in Washington Heights, New York for the first five years then we moved to, this is a joke because I've realized throughout my adulthood now, I'm not entitled to say the Bronx because I lived in Riverdale, which was my middle class to upper middle class suburb or neighborhood in the Bronx. And so now when I tell people I grew up in the Bronx, they laugh and they say, that's not the Bronx. <laughs> so um, I was there until I was 12 and I went to a really diverse elementary school and had a fantastic experience. And then I moved to the real true suburbs of Long Island uh, in a town nice. called East Setauket, New York, and uh, where there really was a lack of diversity and a whole different uh, experience. So hmm. I always like I start, I've, I've been starting to struggle with that idea of where did you grow up? Because I think I grew up through my, my 20s and I moved into New York City after college, where I've been ever since. And so I'd like to think that I grew up in New York City, but it might be semantics. And what did I want to be when I grew up? I'm that weird kid who I don't remember what, if anything, I ever said I wanted to be when I grew up. I think, you know, I went to college and I started majoring in sociology. And I think that we're drawn to our majors based on what we're good at and what appeals to us. Both were the case. And I also had a mom who was a therapist who never spoke about her 
uh, being a therapist. She never came home talking about her cases. She really was very strict about confidentiality. And I had a sense of what she did. Yeah, I might be going a little broad now because this lends itself to really, you know, how did I know I wanted to be a therapist? So I'm just going to toss it back over to you and see where, where it yeah. lands. Yeah. Okay. So your mother was a therapist. Yeah. And you said that she didn't talk a ton about her cases or bring it home, but it was just in the atmosphere. Yes. In the household. And yes. did you did you ever get to talk with her about that? Not so much. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's weird. It's like she, she, I think, developed this as a late in her career, as a second or third career. And so I remember being around 10 years old when she was in graduate school. And then she was working at an outpatient clinic for several years. And it wasn't until that move to Long Island many years later that she made one of the rooms in her home her office. And I just knew we had to be damn quiet when uh, when her clients would come in. And we weren't allowed downstairs where the office was. And I had a sense, of, of course, by that time, I, mean, I had to be at least 14 or 16, where I knew what, what the work was about. But again, she was pretty private about her own practice. So I don't attribute her to why I went into this field. I attribute her in other ways, which is coming from a dysfunctional family and wanting to understand why people feel the way they do, think the way they do, behave the way they do. And I think that that was probably my foray into wanting to be on the other side of the couch. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I I don't want to probe too much, but... You can probe as much as you'd like. Uh, I'm going to be an open book today because this is very funny. I want to say that the timing of this is interesting. So one of the earlier episodes is called, You Want Me to Bear My Soul. And it came about because the cohort who gave me the idea for this podcast, the cohort where I teach in a social work program at a BSW level, said that they had wanted, they wished that I was in their back pocket and could answer all the questions as they were embarking on their first field experiences. But they were also a cohort that was really interested in my personal life and felt that I didn't share enough of myself. So that episode addresses that with them directly and thinking about it from a transferential and counter-transferential lens. But we listen to that episode as an assignment now for my class currently. And I was thinking about this upcoming interview with you and about how I was going to reveal certain parts of myself and maybe some parts that I haven't really revealed to many at all. So I think that's going to come up, I would assume, by some other questions you're going to ask. But well, I think you'll have to cancel your that. next three clients for the evening because <laughs> <laughs> I'm adding so many follow-up questions to my list here. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I will stay streamlined as much as possible. Well, you mentioned, you know, your family and that kind of inspiring you to go into therapy. And is there anything else you might be willing to share about that and how it relates to the work that you do now? Yeah. Most of us, I say, who go into this field, go into the field to heal ourselves, whether we're aware of that consciously or not. uh, And we do it unconsciously. But I think the benefit of this work is that we're continuously working on ourselves, not just professionally, but personally. Part of that is working out our stuff as we're being impacted by our clients' stories and their experiences and making sure that our stuff doesn't get in the way of their stuff and that we don't impose our stuff on them. We are works in progress. My new kind of mantra is, you know, we are our clients, our clients are us, really. So your question was, tell you more about that, (laughs) my family's dysfunction. 
it was just kind of a hard upbringing. I had a hard time in the home. I had a hard time outside of the home. I was bullied in school a bit. And I just remember my formative years being really stressful and marred with a bunch of unhappiness. So I think the propensity to empathize is just so innate in me through my own experiences. And I remember actually watching like Lifetime movies during middle school and adolescence and just crying beyond the norm, right? I think that there was probably an over-identification with these characters and these really, really bad movies, these after-school shows that portrayed all of these social issues that I felt either directly identified with or completely indirectly. And so in a way, I think that's armed me with the ability to be really compassionate for other people's plights and their own stories and really interested and curious about how one's environment shapes one's development. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm wondering if you're if you're willing to share did you yourself enter into therapy on the client side of things? And did that influence your decision? Yeah, well, I think I was 10 years old. Not that I really remember the experience, but when I was taken to therapy, when it was clear about my unhappiness. And a lot of my unhappiness had a lot to do with my sibling relationship, which I, I know when we talked uh, pre-recording, you had expressed some interest in my series in sibling abuse and how I came to develop that interest. And so now I feel like I'm going a little bit all over the place. I remember when I was getting my doctorate, they called the research that we were going to embark on for our dissertation, me-search, right? Because most of us chose topics. They said, choose something that you're going to be interested in for the long haul, because writing your dissertation and and, um, researching your dissertation takes a long time, several years. So you better be pretty passionate about the topic. So my research was on sibling abuse, emotional and physical sibling abuse during childhood and or adolescence. I was, I feel like I'm outing myself for the very first time, Julie. And uh, I've been toying with this idea for a while that at what point am I going to disclose or share my own experience with sibling abuse? And so for now, I'll just say that it was present and that I had my own experience with that. The details may be forthcoming. Perhaps I'll be my own guest on my podcast in regard to sharing my experience with that. I think that that obviously was uh, an impactful trauma in my life. And so it made me interested in learning the intricacies of it, you know, now from a theoretical lens and being able to interview people as part of my dissertation to understand what were certain experiences of that overall experience like. So obviously I had to generate questions and what I was interested in honing in on. And so perhaps through that process, I was looking for some sort of validation, but I also was certainly interested in giving a voice to those out there who didn't have one because it wasn't really on the map yet when I embarked on that. And I saw that I was doing like all of this research to lead up to the sibling abuse literature on child abuse, parent-child abuse, there would be like 3,000, 4,000 articles. And then I did sibling abuse. I would do a search and there would be like 10, if that. A a voice needed to be represented. Mm -hmm. And whatever was the driving force for that, again, my own validation, wanting to service, be in service to those folks. Here it is and here I am. And um, I'm happy to have landed here where I can uh, be the voice that maybe others don't have. So on that note, sorry to be so long-winded, but on that note, the uh, that's what propelled me into therapy at age 10 by my parents. Wow. 
And then, of course, as I was getting my master's degree, my feeling was everybody should experience therapy. I mean, we have to work our stuff out, as I always say, and I, I feel like I preach that. Uh, and I wish that it was a mandate for BSW and MSW programs. But I was doing it not only because I obviously was still struggling with some stuff, but also because I thought in order to be a good therapist, I better I better have my stuff managed. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so sorry that you endured that. And then to take it and transform it into this post-traumatic growth kind of experience where now you can be a champion for people who've endured this as well and bring this research area to light that hasn't been dealt with before. It's incredible. And um, I, I thank you for sharing that for the first time more publicly. Oh, um, yeah. And um, you also mentioned having experienced therapy yourself and feeling like that's something that people should experience if they are to become therapists. And I, I, do agree with that. And it's something that's inspired me to pursue becoming a therapist as well, because I had my own very transformative experience uh, on the client side of things. It's almost part of the education, I guess, in this field and part of really believing in it and being able to instill hope in our clients that this process uh, does work. So I'm wondering, you know, to kind of go back to your uh, trajectory here, can you describe your educational background a little bit? You touched on your dissertation, but a little bit more about your your undergrad and master's and PhD, what yeah. that was all like for you. I'll put it in order now. Yeah. <laughs> right, so I'll come back and put it in order. So where I went to college, I went to Ithaca College many moons ago, and they did not have a BSW program. Not that I would have really known, I think. Even though my mother was a social worker, she didn't have her BSW either. Right? She just got her MSW. But I majored in sociology, again, because it was all about people and groups of people and society and how we're shaped and how we shape others. And I found that fascinating and I excelled in it. So of course that was encouraging to continue with it. I think I knew, I don't know at what point, I can't, it's not like I have an exact moment I can say, but I knew I wanted to become a therapist. And so I thought I wasn't quite ready to do that after I graduated from school. I needed a, a couple of years off to put my dip my toe in the water and see if, in fact, it was something I wanted to now dedicate that time and energy to. So I got a job first at a at a private small private psychiatric hospital in New York City in their admissions center. So I just got a kind of a flavor of doing intakes, and I found that really fascinating. And then I got a job as an assistant director of the American Anorexia Bulimia Association, which was so interesting because I had no interest in eating disorders necessarily. I mean, I wasn't disinterested. It just was not something that spoke to me. The title sounded very flashy, but I was working in a studio apartment by myself, uh, overseen by a board of directors, no less by women, I'm sure, who... who eating disorders did speak to for some reason because these were volunteer positions. And it was an information and referral service where I was uh, just really speaking to people all over the United States who I had this file. It was funny. We didn't have a computer back then with all these resources. I had a file of these eating disorder spe specialists in Michigan, Washington. And I would just open the file. I would recommend readings. I would recommend therapists and doctors that they could see. And that was my job. And it was interesting because it didn't really 
broaden my perspective of social work in such the grand way that I had hoped. But after a while, I thought, I'm ready now to go to graduate school because I want to broaden my knowledge base. And so after two years of working in the field, I went to CUNY Hunter College School of Social Work, which was an incredibly diverse experience, both in the students who went there, both in the location that we were at, both uh, not both in, and in addition to um, the faculty who just had such broad expertise. And it was my best educational experience up until that point. It was, or probably to this point, it was fantastic. And I interned at Bronx State Psychiatric Center, which was a major learning curve in terms of learning how to work with people with serious persistent mental illness. It was scary as can be because I was on a locked male admissions ward. I had no experience, uh, you know, of that elk whatsoever. I was getting experience dealing with people who were having hallucinations and delusions, who were actively psychotic, who were threatening to me. And it was an incredible growth experience. And then the following year, I asked to be placed in an outpatient mental health clinic as I knew I was now moving towards, right, I wanted to be doing therapy. And so that was also an incredibly eclectic experience working with diversity in age, uh, diagnosis, um, socioeconomic demographics, uh, you know, every, everything. And it was a wonderful experience. And please interrupt me because I'm not used to talking for long periods of time. <laughs> I want to just let you go, you know, free associate. I'll just be a okay. fly on the wall here. Okay. I really appreciate you telling your story. And so if if a student were to ask you if they should go further in their education and get a, a, a PhD or a PsyD, what would you say to them to help them make that decision? Yes, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think anybody can be a social worker with a master's degree. Absolutely, perfectly fine. If you want to be a clinical therapist, then I do think that it demands more than those two years of um, graduate experience because it's a real specialty and it takes time and energy and knowledge, uh, theoretical knowledge to be able to work with somebody's emotional life. You know, it's a really delicate thing and you have to understand all sorts of things, but I'll just give you the quick answer to that. Like about, if we think about defense mechanisms and why people do the way they do what they do and how they take in the experiences that they have when they are growing up and how we project those experiences onto other people. I mean, it's a very complex thing, the way that we relate and the dynamics of relationships. And and relationships are everywhere. So I'm not just talking about people who are coming into therapy to talk about um, their, their struggles with friendships or intimate relationships. I mean, relationships permeate everything, employment, careers, schooling, our interactions in our community, in the world at large. So they're kind of everything. And I think that we have to understand how people have processed these earlier experiences and made sense of them, most mostly unconsciously, unknowingly, right? And we would then walk through life just assuming other people are going to relate to us the way that these earlier figures have. And until we can kind of separate that and understand that, okay, we've developed how we are, and again, also understanding developmental theory and understanding all sorts of other types of theory in regard to human relations, then we're not primed yet to work with other people. And so I think that the graduate program gives us a foundation. And again, you can be a fantastic social worker with it. But I'm also very pleased that the Council on Social Work Education and the NASA, um, excuse me, the National Association for Social Workers is now mandating 
CEs, continuing education credits, because we were the only profession for quite a long time that didn't require that. And I think that it's an ongoing learning journey. So I say all the credit to that. And please, you know, continue to grow and develop. And that doesn't really get to your question. I feel like I'm rambling (laughs) because I have to tell you, part of being a survivor of sibling abuse, it has to do with not having much of a voice when one was younger. You weren't heard, obviously, because it wasn't addressed. And your voice was minimized in all sorts of ways, either explicitly or implicitly. So now I was just telling this in class two, not in relation to being a survivor, but just in relation to life experience. You know, there are talkers and there are listeners. And to be a therapist, we tend to be listeners. And so I always find it very interesting when I'm in my friend groups now, various friend groups, who are the ones who can sustain the conversations, who have a little bit of a harder time. And I've moved, I've grown significantly in moving from one-word answers to more lengthy responses, but this is like really lengthy. And I guess it still taps into some discomfort within myself. Like, are people really going to want to tune in? I'm enjoying it as I just let you (laughs) continue to talk and just share your brilliant (laughs) insights with your audience, who's probably so eager to hear them and to hear that vulnerability and realness from you and about the work you do and about your life story. So as a documentary filmmaker, uh, I'm used to being behind the camera Mm -hmm. and interviewing and trying to minimize my uh, noise (laughs) to get wonderful sound bites from my interviewees and to to let them, you know, keep talking and um, express themselves at deeper levels without interrupting, which I think is, you know, similar to therapy in a lot of ways. Uh, So thank you for bearing with my style as well here in this interview. Thank you for your encouragement. Uh, (laughs) I want to get back to your original question, which is uh, a PhD or not. Yeah, well, it's interesting too, because obviously there's a lot of therapists out in the world working with an LSW or LCSW and, you know, or going on to that kind of terminal LCSW and not pursuing um, a doctoral degree. So, so that was kind of my question of, you know, and, and then some folks will continue on. It seems like you got your LCSW and then went on to get your PhD. Is that correct? Well, actually there was a step in between. So I went from getting my LCSW again, after a few years, went back for training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which was 10 years, (laughs) long years of learning again, how to be really an analyst, which is a step beyond a therapist. It's, I mean, it's not a step beyond, it's just working in a very different way, very Freudian, very, you know, much working with the unconscious. And again, as I said, the idea of projections. And so it's a lot of learning theory, a lot of supervision, a lot of your own therapy. For that program, it was mandated that you attend your own therapy for three times a week for four years. So um, yeah, it felt like a bit of an endless process. And now they have institutes where you can go for two years or four years. 10 years is really kind of out of the norm anymore. But of course, I got a wealth of knowledge. I don't regret having done that. And that primed me to feel extremely confident in the work that I was doing. And it's interesting now, because again, even my students say, I don't have any confidence. I don't know what I'm doing. And of course you don't. And it took me years to feel that. So Anyway, after that, going into teaching was a second career. It happened really quite obscurely. 
And I went for my PhD so that I could become a professor. It was not to become a therapist. My PhD is in social welfare. And what I learned was how to do research. It really did not arm me at all to do psychotherapy. Got it. Okay. That at all? That that's great. Yes, of course. And with your psychoanalytic training, how does that relate to the work you do now or differ from your style now? How do you integrate it? Because I know you also draw from CBT and other modalities in your work. Yeah. So I become a little more eclectic over the years, but I was trained psychoanalytically. I consider myself a psychodynamic psychotherapist. Thinking back to my training, which also feels like a hundred years ago. Yes, it was very Freudian. Uh, I do believe in his general theories. I do certainly give them weight uh, along with many other object relations theorists and relational theorists and self-psychology theorists. We got it all. And I seem to circle back to, and certainly the the focus of my podcast is on transference and counter-transference, this idea of our projections, which started with Freud. And uh, so I don't think we can discount him as many people would like to do. I think he was brilliant in in even understanding that idea that we move through this life projecting all the time on people, all the time. And if you want to know more about that, you just have to listen to other episodes because we touch on that every time and I'm not going to get too deep into that. But I think I've grown over the course of time to understand that the population we're currently working with doesn't necessarily have the tolerance and patience to work psychoanalytically because it's a very slow process getting in touch with our unconscious. And people want feedback and people want to feel like they're being heard and understood. And that kind of blank slate, let the projections happen, isn't really working for this generation, I don't think. So I've uh, integrated other ways of working in terms of journaling, in terms of doing self-talk, helping clients learn how to self-talk, challenging their irrational thought patterns, and so and so. Where do you think the therapeutic alliance, kind of what role does it have in all of this when you kind of separate out your approach, the different kinds of therapy you're using, CBT, eclectic, psychodynamic, DBT, et cetera, does the therapeutic alliance kind of trump everything else? Or Uh what do you have to say about that? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, of course I think that because uh, I still work psychodynamically. I mean, I think that a lot of what happens in therapy is reparenting. I think it's about providing what's called corrective emotional experiences, which is basically the idea that we had a lot of faulty parenting, and I'm not here to blame parents. I defend parents all the time in the sense that I think a lot of what we have to do is to mourn the parents we have, not that they're not fantastic in many, many ways, but our needs and our expectations often aren't met because a lot of families are dysfunctional. It doesn't mean that they they can't have a lot of functional parts. But, you know, parenting is the hardest job in the world, the hardest job in the world. There's no guidebook. Everybody has their limitations. And I think part of therapy is managing those expectations, those limitations, and mourning the loss of who we needed our parents to be for us. And also, you know, reworking the traumas that we've experienced on all different levels And that comes through building a relationship with somebody, the therapist, who is impartial, who is not emotionally invested. And and I realize that the more I say that, the less I like the sound of it, because 
I am emotionally invested in my clients, but the ties aren't as strong as obviously if you were blood, if we were related, where, which allows me to not get as fired up or personally involved in a way that I can be helpful. So even though like a parent can be very well-meaning in regard to their intention to service their children with advice and good positive experiences, the intention is there. But sometimes something just doesn't go right, no matter how well-intended. And I think the corrective emotional experience is, is reparative, is repairing those lapses. And so I don't think, you know, me telling you to journal or me having you do homework of some other sort can repair that in the same way. Can it help you cope? Absolutely, which is why I've developed an eclectic practice. But I still stand strongly behind the the psychodynamic framework, the genuineness of, of that relationship building. What's your take on positive regard or dare I say unconditional positive regard? Uh, unconditional positive regard. I think we strive for that. I I think we're human beings though. And I think that there are times again, can we be subjective instead of objective? Absolutely. Can we be biased? Absolutely. Again, we're human beings. And I think that's one of the things that I hope to demystify as part of my podcast, which is we are people, we have our challenges, and let's bring them into the foreground to discuss them, to work through them so that we don't let them continually uh, impair the potential positive work that we can do with clients. And even when we do have our limitations, it doesn't mean we can't be helpful to others. But one of those limitations may be not always having unconditional positive regard. I could love my clients, but there aren't times I'm going to be disapproving in my head of something that's going on. How not to let that infiltrate the relationship and my work because how I do something isn't necessarily what benefits the client. So there's room for me to be disapproving or feeling some judgment about what's going on. Sometimes I might even bring that up, but sometimes uh, I might not bring it up and still be aware that I need to grapple with that. Mm -hmm. So maybe my question or response to you is, is (laughs) unconditional, you know, positive regard possible all the time? Is unconditional love possible all the time? They are things that we strive for. I think positive regard is extremely important in the therapeutic relationship and taking a strengths-based approach, which is what we're all about in social work. And uh, it's something that I find very kind of natural. I think a lot of us who gravitate towards the field really naturally are able to identify the positive qualities that people have and and see that in them and the potential. The unconditional part, I heard a therapist on TikTok going off on questioning that idea. And so that's kind of why I brought it to you to dish out. Um, And I I really appreciated your response because like you kind of were bringing up, we're all always going to have, we're human too. We have reactions. We try to create a very safe, non-judgmental space as much as possible. Uh, And part of our reactions might be something that we need to talk about with our supervisors or our therapists or whatnot to to process and always being aware of that counter-transferential response. Uh, in order to be mindful of it and to not let it impede the work that we do. 
Uh, which, and speaking of, do you currently have someone that you're able to talk with about your cases, even at this point in your career? Yeah, well, I, I'm in a peer supervision group, and I feel like that's something I'll probably want to be in forever. These are seasoned colleagues. So once upon a time, for years, I paid for outside supervision because when I worked in various settings, one of them being an outpatient mental health clinic for several years before I started my private practice, I thought that it was imperative to my own well-being, let alone my clients, right, to feel like I knew what I was doing, to be able to manage certain things that were coming up. And I didn't feel like the supervision I was getting at the agency was adequate. And then when I went into private practice, well, when I went for institute training, it was required. And I continued that for years thereafter, paid supervision. I had the luxury of being able to afford that. And part of that being able to afford it came from my client base. So it was kind of one one hand's right? Rubbing the others, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, a necessity. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that assessment. And I mean, as a beginning social worker slash therapist, I think supervision is so impactful to just kind of getting going in the field. And of course, I have a lot of it right now. And the idea of ever not having it Mm -hmm. uh, seems less than ideal. I would I would love to just have supervision. So it's very inspiring to hear that you've always been seeking it out and it's still something that you have. And I'm wondering, or, you know, peer support. So you've been practicing for 30 plus years and how has your work changed over this time? How has it changed? Well, you know, there's many lenses through which that can be viewed. What are we talking about? My style? We're talking about my caseload? We're talking, you know, what are we, what are we talking about? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we addressed a little bit of it in regard to becoming more eclectic. I think I've become also much more flexible in my work, flexible in regard to what my clients need from me and what I can be for them. And part of that has come from professional development. And I think a lot of it has come from personal development. I feel so much more free to use myself in ways that um, I didn't feel free before. And one of the things that often comes up in my classroom as part of discussions is the use of self-disclosure. And I think I probably put myself out there that I'm not somebody who's big on self-disclosure. That's not how I was trained, certainly psychoanalytically. I do believe that there's a time and a place, and I do believe in context. I believe in knowing whom you're doing it for, right? Is it me to prove that I get you, and so I want to share my experience? Why am I doing this? So I've become a little bit more flexible regarding that, but just my general style of using humor and being different with different clients, and it's okay. It's like every mother or father in the same home, every child in the same home has a different mother or father, right? Mm -hmm. Or caregiver, because you relate to everybody differently. It's an intersubjective world, what you bring, what I bring, and we meet in the middle somewhere. So that has been very... It's also freeing, I keep saying, but also has made the work a lot more rewarding for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I know that that seems to be a trend for clinicians in general, that they become more eclectic over time, even if they're trained in one specific uh, type of therapy that they're championing, and then they over time tend to become more eclectic. Mm. Um, and I like your point that every relationship is different. What else would we expect? I'll just ask a last question, which is, what are some tips you can offer to new therapists? I'm going to say, I mean, this sounds so hokey, but I'm going to say, be kinder to yourselves. First, be kind, then be kinder (laughs) to yourself in the sense that um, we are works in progress, just like our clients. 
And if you don't have the expectation that they're going to change overnight, then why do you have the expectation of yourself? And vice versa. If you have the demand on yourself that you need to be at this place at by this time, then you're probably going to expect that of your client. And it's not only fair to you, it's not fair to them. Because if it took you X number of years, however old you are, to get to where you are, then it's going to take some time to shift. So slow down, recognize the wins along the way, recognize whose agenda you're paying attention to. We want to always focus on the client's agenda and the client's needs. Just try and enjoy it as you're moving through it. Because as I said, it took me several years to find the enjoyment because I had such a harsh superego. Uh, what I wasn't doing, what I wasn't accomplishing, how the client is potentially viewing me. Just a student in class today said she thinks she's actually too self-aware, too self-reflective. And I said, there's no such thing. But I remember that feeling of, boy, ignorance must be bliss, really, right? There's a reason there's that saying. Because until you loosen or lessen the harshness of your superego, it is going to feel like self-awareness is a curse. Right. Yeah. So um, self-awareness is fantastic, but make sure that you're hearing the voices and the reflections of the good that you are, the good work that you're doing, and start to drown out or minimize that not so nice inner voice. Uh, it'll make the job so much more fun. I think that's such great advice too. And I think a lot of us working with clients try to instill further self-compassion and to combat perfectionism. And then sometimes we're not so great at living up to our own lessons. Everything you're saying, I think, is, is just a common pitfall of being new to the field. Can I ask you a question? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you look a little hesitant. I'm going to ask anyway. Now, as a soon, very soon, two weeks soon to be graduating MSW, what would you tell your beginner self, right, when you first started? What have you taken away now that upon reflection, what advice do you have to, I mean, you're still beginning, obviously, but to the true, true beginner? Yeah, well, I think for me, I'm a career changer. You mentioned that your mom was a career changer as well, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did a lot of soul searching before pursuing an MSW and also just kind of having self-doubt around going from being a documentary filmmaker to, to pursuing social work. And will I fit in with the cohort? And can I become an effective therapist and all these self-doubts and, and whatnot? And pretty much immediately getting going, uh, it was like a boot camp. I don't know if every MSW program is like this, but it felt like just so rigorous and being in this kind of multidimensional experience of being in the classroom and then being in an internship and then having a life outside of that, it just kind of made my life a lot more interesting. And uh, I can't believe how much I've learned in two years and really less than two years, because if you don't count the summers, it's been transformational. And I would recommend it to folks who are considering it, do a lot of research, talk to a lot of folks who've done this path before to make sure it's right for you. But I'm really glad that I, I pursued this work, especially if you're the kind of person who just like likes humans and likes being <laughs> around other people and hearing their stories. So mm -hmm. like, like I heard your story today and kind of trying to to help out where you can. I think it's just a kind of magical field, really. That's, a, that's such a lovely 
encapsulation of your two years, really. And I'm so glad because it is a big transition to make and to come out of it feeling like it was the right decision. Kudos to you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you had that experience and that you feel so positively. And I have no doubt that your work as a documentarian serves you as somebody who can explore and probe very gently and very carefully and very knowledgeably about what's important. You, you're already tuned into that and have that ability. So I'm oh, sure thanks. that that is in your favor. Yeah. Well, this is intimidating yeah. to to interview you for your podcast. You know, I'm a little little rusty on the sort of journalistic interviewing. And uh, here we are with our mics and our headphones, very official. Right. right. I, um, you know, you were just fabulous in your <laughs> open-heartedness and answering all these questions and sharing your story. And I think your audience is going to be really grateful to that. I know I'm grateful. No, thank you. Thank you. I want to end on a really positive note if I could, because one of the things I, I feel like I don't say enough is, first of all, just to validate people, I feel like it is my life struggle to find a work life balance. I am consumed by my career, especially being in academia now. There are so many areas of interest and there's work that never gets done. And now this podcast is like another passion and and I'm having a lot of fun with it. But I love my work. I love all of the different pieces of it. I love the teaching. I love the therapy aspect. I love being in the classroom, outside of the classroom. It's all, it's all, I feel... such a piece at my life at this point, my middle age, which I'm really, really happy to experience. And I feel like it is a luxury that clients invite us into their life, right? To share with us their most precious commodity, their emotional selves, their vulnerable selves. And that we have to think about that a little bit more, keep that kind of in the forefront about how lucky we are to be doing this and how much trust that that insinuates before you even really develop that trusting relationship, right? That somebody is willing to come and talk to you about their most private thoughts a lot of the times. Yeah. So, you know, if you've chosen this career, uh, I think you've probably done the right thing for yourself and bask in the, find, you know, bask a little bit more in the good parts. Well, thank you so much. This was really, really enjoyable. And thank you I think so you much, helped, Dr. Myers. You to make it enjoyable. Thank you. Because <laughs> as I said, not easy, but thank you. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?